Well, how do you approach how do you approach the future? For some, I guess, life is one kind of big adventure, and uh, the future is just merely a kind of a, a selection of experiences to be enjoyed. That's very popular, isn't it, within the world of films? But in reality, that that kind of hedonistic pursuit of pleasure is rarely found for any length of time. Rather, the reality that many of us face is that in our futures, we'll be more aware of the kind of the catalogue of the problems that may arise in our future, rather than the dream of all these opportunities that we uh, that could be. One commentator put it like this, just reflecting on our uh, future orientated looking. Like the abused spouse that begins to shrink from the hand before it is even raised in anger, many of us seem to have a tragic response to all that has not yet happened. So I guess as life moves on for many of us, as the responsibilities get bigger and bigger in our workplaces, in our relationships, we can kind of wince, can't we, as that those responsibilities grow. We tend to play safe with the future, uh, not wanting to risk present security. And we may argue that that is just a difference in personality, you know, the half-pint full versus the half-pint empty, or the, the optimist versus the pessimist. But when approaching the future, yeah, hope and positive thinking is to be encouraged. That, that's a good thing. But at the same time, I guess we all have in us That little bit of pessimism that grounds us in reality of what might be. Approaching the future day to day may not even actually, maybe if you're younger, not even cross your radar. All you're thinking about is for maybe tomorrow or even the next hour, maybe even the next minute. That's all that crosses your mind. But whether it is love or money or some form of struggle at points in our lives, what lies in the future will grab us by the neck and begin to question all of us and raise questions in all of us. Oh, the future is, of course, most acutely acknowledged as we, we see difficulties looming in, in weeks and months to come, perhaps an illness, career disappointments, or even the milestone of a birthday celebration coming up. But understand, future troubles do not necessitate failure. Even though maybe your natural inclination is to think the worse. Positively, a Puritan once said this, Affliction is a good man's shining time. Affliction is a good man's shining time. That is, I think what he was saying is, as he looks to the future, there may be difficult times ahead, but they are times to grow. To become more like Jesus. There are times when perhaps even questions in our hearts and minds begin to be answered. If you have that kind of natural pessimistic inclination towards what might happen in the future. I guess you should be able to recognise that our immediate response to what may come. Isn't necessarily the best thing that we ought to trust. I mean think for example... The disciples, their response to Jesus, uh, declaring he was to die on the cross, demonstrated that their approach and their judgment was was flawed. They weren't aware of the bigger picture, were they? Think of Peter's response in Mark chapter 8. They failed to see that beyond the now, to see that Christ's cross would, would of course lead to their salvation and to the salvation of many. 
So the regarding the future, oh, we've got a number of approaches, haven't we? We could just blindly avoid it to, and try and cope. Well, we could just become passive and just hold in there for the ride, heavily kind of accepting the burden of fate, one might say. But I think we've got another option. We have a, an opportunity to face the future, difficulties and all, and welcome it as a wonderful gift from God. It's that kind of attitude, that, that welcoming of the future, taking initiative with what is to come, that is demonstrated here in Ruth chapter 3. And in all the characters of the story, Ruth, Naomi and Boaz, all take steps of trust and obedience, knowing that God is ultimately in control of everything, recognising that nothing is left to fate. And I guess similarly, we ought to approach the future in that way too. With trusting initiative. But we do so ultimately because God has taken the initiative with us through the gift of his son. Let's look back, if you haven't been with us before, let's look back where the story has come from so far. Leaving Moab, boo, that's what we all should sort of say at that point. Um, leaving Moab, both as widows, Naomi and Ruth, they head to Bethlehem, 50 miles um, uh, due west. They are at their lowest ebb at that stage. It's like, um, I don't know if you saw in the papers recently, the Blue Monday, did you see that? It's kind of a, the January the 23rd it lay this year. It's the lowest um, psychologically low point of our year in this country. It's when the credit card bills came in. It's the lowest, as in of, it's the wettest, the darkest the horriblest day of the year. Well, I kind of, you get the impression of that is Ruth and Naomi's feeling. It is Blue Monday in chapter 1, verse 21. As Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, Naomi's moaning, it seems kind of fair, doesn't it? Her husband is dead. Her two sons have died. And now she faces hunger. And in that situation, potentially death. At the end of chapter 1, according to Naomi, God is sovereign. That is, he's in control. He's all-powerful. But he's not good, according to Naomi. There are glimmers of hope in the last verse of chapter 1, if you cast your eyes down there, as the answers to Naomi's prayer actually stand beside her, in Ruth and in the harvest of the barley fields. And both of which begin to bear fruit in the chapter 2, as we saw last week. And in chapter 2, um, the, the theme of compassion comes through in Ruth, and then later in Boaz. Both, of course, mirroring their creator. But the brilliant and humbling touch is that God is working out. He is securing the future for Naomi in answer to her prayers, despite her continued complaining. So we get to chapter 3. And kind of the story reaches its climax here. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? How we approach the future is in the minds of all of the three main characters here. What is going to happen to each of them? Think of their situations. Think of Naomi for a second. Uh, The harvest is nearly over. Which meant that her supply of the gleanings, which we looked at uh, last week was coming to an end. 
starvation was very possible. Opportunities were running out. Think of Ruth for a second. Risky opportunities are coming her way that could change her future forever. Think of Boaz. His status and honour. They're under threat here by what goes down on the threshing floor. We'll look at that in a moment. What will they all do as they look to the future? Now for you and me, what are we going to do with this new week of our life ahead of us? How do we approach the future? I hope as we look at this passage together now, we'll be able able to to begin to answer that question with more clarity and with more confidence. So let's look at the story and firstly the character of Naomi. She's facing uh, all her opportunities seem to be going, vanishing. Look at it again in verse 1 to 5. One day Naomi and her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not try and find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. It's very exciting, isn't it? Before we get to our first points, which are on the sheets, um, let me make a few things clear about these verses. Sometimes when you teach a passage, things can like, be quite obvious, can't they? There can be imperatives, instructions there. But here I imagine there are quite a few questions that, that are raised from this passage about what is going on. And also, what does it allow? Certainly with regard to relationships. Time has passed. Let's look at the context. Winnowing has begun. Winnowing is just the, um, the, simply the process when they're separating the straw from the, the grain and the chaff. Harvesters would move away from the fields uh, to usually a bed of rock and they would uh, throw it up into the air. It would come down onto the, the rock and it would separate. And uh, then the grain would be taken back to store or to sell. Now simply and personally, Naomi knows and must be quite worried at this stage, if winnowing is happening, that the food would soon be gone. Either it will have been um, sold on for profit, or it will have been consumed. Now, Naomi, throughout, we've seen, she's not perfect. She's complained bitterly um, at her emptiness. If you remember, she changed her name. But here I think we see not a conniving and kind of manipulative self-serving widow, as some actually do paint her from this story. But rather, I think what we see here is someone who, someone who looks at life and looks at her own inability in life, her, her, the, the lack of opportunity in her life, and in love gives the little bit of opportunity she has away. A very bust opportunity came under the compassion of Boaz Boaz, because actually Naomi was in in the right line uh, for Boaz to be her redeemer. But in love, Naomi gives that opportunity away. You see somewhat of her love in verse 1, if you look at that. She says, my daughter, Ruth. No, she's not. She's a daughter-in-law. 
Uh, the love is kind of obvious. She's taken her in as her own daughter. Clearly, Naomi is wise to the process of the harvest. She knows there's going to be a feast at the end of the winnowing process. Uh, so in her mind, she concludes, right, this is the time. This is the opportunity. And the time is critical. Look at verse 2 if you can. It's very specific. Tonight. Tonight he will be winnowing. So Naomi instructs, what does she instruct Ruth to do? Slip on her best high heels, the most glamorous outfit, and put a bit of lippy on and get down to it on the threshing floor, is it? No. Now think about it, guys. Ruth has been in mourning for her loss of her husband. Uh, she's recently travelled 50 miles across uh, quite terrain, you know, high terrain, mountainous terrain, to get to Bethlehem. She hardly had a kind of, uh, you know, little roller cases behind her with a whole lot of outfits. Now we can imagine she changes from her work clothes, uh, perhaps even her clothes of mourning, that would have been cultural, and she puts on just a normal cloak. She perfumes and washes herself, but that's what every woman did of this culture. I, I think it simply signifies that she's now ready to move on. In and of herself, but also to the, to the world around her. She's changed from what she's been previously wearing. But what about the end of verse 3? Then, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. Is Naomi suggesting to Ruth... Yeah, make sure he's had a few too many before you go and see him. Take advantage of him when he's had, a, you know, he's a bit kind of half cut there. No. What is going on here? Simply, I think what Naomi is trying to do, is she's trying to avoid Boaz being kind of shamed in this society. Now, there had been a famine. We know that back in chapter one. Now there was a crop. Winnowing had begun and it was occurring. And there's this great feast to mark this wonderful provision And it wasn't the place in that culture for women to be. It was for the harvesters. You see, if Ruth were to walk into that great feast at the end of winnowing and say, you know, to Boaz, redeem me. You are my kinsman redeemer. It would have been very socially embarrassing for both Boaz and dangerous for Ruth. So go down to the threshing floor, Naomi says. Ruth is to approach her kinsman redeemer. Under Naomi's instructions, she's to take initiative, not advantage. But seeing the opportunities that the future holds, both Naomi and Ruth, they act, don't they? They do something, trusting the provision of God's law that he had provided a kinsman redeemer for the destitute. Naomi and Ruth. So we get to our first point here. We're going to look at approaching the kinsman redeemer. That's what we've seen in the story so far. But what about us? We don't need to perfume ourselves before God. But rather like Ruth and Naomi, we need to understand something of our own neediness before God. Like them, we are not full, but empty. Not in our stomachs, but spiritually before a perfect And holy God. We need something that only God can provide. We need a redeemer. 
We need Christ. But the very nature of our sin, that, that rebellion is, is before God. And we all have that. Is we trust in ourselves, don't we? And that is that self-sufficiency for today in all of humanity that can drive us from the very source of life for eternity. And hence why I kind of turn to Coldplay here. You know the first verse. I'm not going to get either me or you to sing it, but it says this. When you try your best and you don't succeed, when you get what you want but not what you need, when you feel so tired but you can't sleep, stuck in reverse. I guess the general picture of that is that life is pretty miserable at this stage. What's Coldplay's remedy? Lights will guide you home. And ignite your bones. He's just ripped off a little image from Psalms there. And then he turns and it's very interesting. I will try to fix you. He's actually talking about one of his family. um, Who suffers from um, an eating disorder. I will try and fix I will do it. I will try it. It's a great song, isn't it? What an anthem. But it's a load of rubbish. Now we can't fix ourselves before a perfect and holy God. We need a redeemer. Our sin and our hunger in this life, it can't be worked through. It can't be paid off by ourselves. You cannot fix me and I cannot fix you. And when the future looms large and dauntingly encroaches all of our horizons, that is the time that some of us are forced to admit that, isn't it? That we cannot fix ourselves before a holy and perfect God. We need help. We need someone to buy us out of our destitution like Naomi and Ruth. We need a redeemer. We need Christ. And when? Tonight. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor waiting for you. Do you need to take the initiative? For some here, you may never have approached the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. And if that is you, then you need to recognise your need before Him. And take that initiative. If you want to know how to do this, it would be my honour and privilege to talk to you about that after the service. But many of us have, haven't we? We've approached Christ, we've, we've recognised we're needy before Him. And we've been redeemed through what he's done on the cross. But in one sense, we need to approach our Redeemer daily. In gratitude. And we do that as we read of him in his word, the Bible. And we do that with the most wonderful privilege of being able to talk to him. Having a relationship with him as we speak to him in prayer. But for those we know, and we know many people, don't we, who are hungry... And destitute like Naomi and Ruth here. Who are in utter need of a redeemer. We need to do what? We need to pray for them. And like Naomi, self-sacrificially do everything we possibly can. To get them to the threshing floor. Let's look at the story as it continues. Verse 6. Why don't you follow with me? So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. 
In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Verse 6, it's kind of a connecting verse, isn't it? From the instruction to the action of what Ruth does. But most importantly, we see Ruth obeying. She obeys her mother-in-law here. Verse 7 again is unlikely to mean that Boaz has indulged himself with a few too many Jack Daniels that night. He isn't perfect. We know that because he's not the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is a noble man of honourable character as we've seen. And the actions that shortly follow show it is unlikely he would have failed any kind of breath test if stopped by the police on his chariot that night. He's simply in good spirits after his bonus. You know what that feels like, don't you? So what is Ruth doing? Uncovering the feet of Boaz down at the threshing floor. Is this just kind of a, an ancient behind the bike sheds kind of thing going on here? No, I don't think so. Firstly, she's obedient here, doing exactly what Naomi had instructed. And practically, she's just keeping herself warm. It would have been cold. She hasn't got central heating like we have. But also, just as she gleaned, if you remember, from the edges of Boaz's field, so now she uses the unused edges of his blanket. It doesn't seem inappropriate or undignified. We'd, we'd see that in the text, if it were. These are not the actions of some kind of flirtatious young lady. Given Boaz's response, that seems to be the case. But symbolically and importantly for us, our second point, I think we see here Ruth is petitioning the kinsman redeemer. And that the uncovering of feet, you've got to get this culturally, what's going on here. That's about as blatant as a bloke kneeling down on one knee with a diamond solitaire ring and saying, will you marry me? It's about as, it's about as kind of close as you can get culturally. It seems by his response that he knew exactly what it meant. It meant that the one uncovering was requesting and was requesting or petitioning protection. And a particular form of protection. And we'll see what that is next time when we look at Ruth chapter 4 in two weeks. It's marriage. Verse 8 is the kind of climax. Something startled the man here. This is where the action begins. Who are you? He asked. It's a typical man response, isn't it? He's met Ruth loads of times. Who are you? He knows Ruth. But he's just not expecting her there at that moment. So in his tiredness and kind of, kind of waking up, you know, blokes aren't very good there, are we? He's forgotten her name, basically. Many of you are telling me, my, my, my wife will tell you very, very clearly that I'm not the best in the morning. That's a slight understatement, it has to be said. But I'll tell you a little story. When I was um, in my previous church, we used to have this um, elders' prayer meeting very early in the morning, about six o'clock in the morning. I remember going there. Yeah, Rob and John, there we go. <laughs> um, someone who I'd known for years, a good friend, and we'd been praying together as a bit of a group, and uh, just at the end, I said, 10 minutes, now let's pray with the person beside us. I was so asleep that I couldn't remember my good friend's name. For about 10 minutes, I prayed for my brother in Christ. I prayed for my comrade in arms for the cause of the gospel. I prayed every kind of thing that I possibly could because I couldn't remember this man's name in my sleep-deprived nature as I was at that time. 
But that's why we get here in verse 9. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Will you protect me? That's what's going on. Since you are a kinsman redeemer, brackets, will you marry me? She places herself under the garment, or literally here in the, in the language, under the wing of Boaz. Have you heard that before? Do you remember back in chapter 2, verse 12? Boaz prays for Ruth. This is what he says. May you be richly re- rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that amazing? You see, in God's province, in his sovereign control of everything... Boaz is the answer to his own prayer. And she takes the initiative to make it so. And she puts herself obediently in that place. And that leads to her redemption. Her petition, her actions put her under his protection. And put her in a position of essentially now being engaged to Boaz. There's a promise in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's um, a little further on in your, in your Bibles, but don't worry about it for now. Ezekiel chapter 16 says this. God's speaking to Israel. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. In this covering, Ruth becomes Boaz's. And Boaz becomes Ruth. So to whom do you belong? I guess we might say family. I'm part of such a family. I'm, you know, I belong to my, my spouse, you know, if you're married. Friends, perhaps. But who points us to do what is right, as Naomi does Ruth here? See, if we're alone, we fail, frequently fail, don't we, to take the initiative to do what God wants. We know we should, but however hard we try, we seem to fail so often. Why do we not do what we know God wants us to do? I guess it's because we don't trust God. Is it because we, we don't see the need to obey Him in everything? And that is, as we know, the Bible says it's simply sin. Sin is having no desire to obey God. And sin shows itself as much in just ignoring him in that kind of cool, indifferent way or that hot rebellion or whatever it is, that besetting sin we have. But Ruth listened and Ruth obeyed. She put herself in a risky situation. and She could have been misunderstood. She could have been branded actually as a prostitute in this situation. Boaz could have misread Ruth and taken advantage. But she obeyed in this risky situation. And when we, obey God, when we do obey God, when we trust in his promises, there is great blessing. Because we become his, under his protection, under his wings, and that is eternal. So what can we learn? Well, simply Ruth trusted the one who gave the instruction despite the risks, and so... As we obey God, we need to trust him in absolutely everything, in every part of our lives. You're not going to obey God if you don't want to trust him, but if you do trust him, you will want to obey him. I just have to challenge all of us. So do, you, do you trust God with every aspect of your life? Everyone? 
As Christians, we are to respond to the commands of God with obedience. But that is only based on the trust that we have in the one who gives the commands as we read them in his word. And if you don't know God very well because you haven't been reading his word, you're more and more unlikely to obey him, aren't you? So let me commend you. Get stuck into his word. And maybe Lau would like to answer the door. Is that the door? It's a clock. There we go. Don't worry about it. It's half past. <clears throat> Everything's going wrong. To sum up this, uh, this point to finish, we need to be humble to think less of our own ways. Whether that's in relationships, work, decision making, and much more of God's ways. What helps us obey God more? Well, of course, humility. Trusting his word, for he is as good as his word, of course. See, this is not a story about single women realising they can take steps to gain what they want at all costs. No, that is feminism. It is about God's needy children showing them that he will provide. Look how honest Ruth was before her Redeemer in verse 9. You are only that honest, aren't you, when you're humble. So we must humble ourselves before our God. And he will lift us up and bless us beyond measure. Humble yourself. Trust in him and obey him. That's demonstrated in all of the relationships in this chapter. Of course, the blessing comes materially and our blessing is spiritual. Because our Redeemer brings us, of course, to, the, to become the bride of Christ. In whom we enjoy life eternal. So lastly, last main point, protection from the kinsman redeemer. Looking at verses 10 to 15. Cast your eyes down that as we look at that if you can. Note that Boaz is uh, not close enough to be, com- uh, to be compelled by Israel's law to marry Ruth. Not at all. There's someone closer. And we can assume that Boaz was probably married before. He's a wealthy uh, middle-aged man. And in that culture, pretty much everyone would have been married. So we can only guess that her, um, his wife has probably died. But Boaz becomes Ruth's protector. And he seems to be rather pleased about that, doesn't he? We can assume from the text. So Boaz protects. Firstly, Ruth's reputation on the threshing floor. Remember, this is a, this is a serious den of testosterone, this place. Men away from the family, as they were, you can imagine the scene. Boaz also protects family members in the giving of the six measures of barley at the end for Naomi. He protects. And Naomi's prayers are being answered. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord has brought me back empty, she cries. But the grain from Boaz was just a foretaste of his protection. Both for Naomi and Ruth, but also for the whole family of Elimelech. The grain was, if you like, the guarantee of what was to come in the marriage. And God through Boaz was once again showing his goodness and his kindness. This word that keeps cropping up in the Hebrews is kesed. And Boaz was being faithful and fulfilling his duties before God. And he enjoyed it. He loved it. See, not all of our responsibilities as Christians following the Lord Jesus are easy, but not even enjoyable sometimes. But there is great joy in following Christ. We perhaps just don't realise that serving God can be exciting and thrilling and joyful. Especially when we consider those aspects of the Christian life that we don't particularly enjoy. Maybe evangelism, we find that difficult. 
But the question from the example of Boaz is, are we being faithful to the duties before God uh, that we've been given and taking pleasure in them? Or are your routines in life, do they take priority? The job, the relationship, the money. Now all of those good things are important and they are good. But like Boaz, we need to see our priorities. We can still work hard, but we need to prioritise Obediently serving our God and honouring him in all we do and enjoying serving him and being obedient in that. Lastly then, the response of Naomi in these last couple of verses, very quickly to close. Facing the future is not about having an optimistic personality. I think we need to make that clear. It's about knowing a kind and loving God. And Ruth and Naomi and Boaz knew this. And you see how each of them call us to consider how God cares for us. So you see, in Naomi's hunger, do you see something of our neediness before an almighty God, spiritually? In in her kindness, her caring as she forgoes her own rights for the benefit of Ruth, do you see something of God's provision for us in the gift of his son? Doesn't this remind us of a good shepherd who lays his life down? For his friends, look at her patience to wait for the Redeemer in verse 18. As we wait for ours, she is no longer empty and nor are we because we've been given Christ. In Ruth's complete obedience, her trust in Naomi, do you see something of the son's obedience, Jesus, to his father? This is something we are called to, of course. We're called to Christ, our kinsman and Redeemer, and we're called to trust in him through his word. God has provided something we need and it's more than barley. It's more than food. It's more than a, a husband or the financial security of anything like that. Christ has taken on himself the judgment that you and I deserve. And this good news is provided in God's kindness through giving his son to take a punishment that you and I deserve on a cross. Why has he given us this? So that we can face the future. Not singing to each other that we will try and fix each other. But rather living each day with confidence. Confidence that our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, will protect us for eternity. Let's pray as we close. Holy Father, I guess as many of us look ahead, we are perhaps daunted about what may come. And if the only thing that we can sing to each other is that we'll try and fix each other, then that is a hopeless, a hopeless future. So we do thank you that in this story we see uh, a redeemer. And in approaching that Redeemer, protection is available. Of course, this is a story of a few thousand years ago, and it it has material blessings. And we know this so much more clearly. Because in the gift of your Son, in approaching him, demonstrating and understanding our neediness before him, and trusting in him, we can know his protection forever.
So Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know the protecting work of Jesus when he died on the cross, taking the punishment that our sins deserve, may we approach him tonight and trust in him. Amen. Well, our last hymn is a very...